show you the money. Oh, no, no, you can do better than that, Jerry. I want you to say it with you with meaning, brother. Hey, I got Bob Sugar on the other line. I better hear you say it. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 show you the money. Not, not show you. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah. Louder. Show me the money. That's it, brother, but you got to yell that shit. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. An iconic scene from an iconic movie. Tom Cruise plays the eponymous Jerry Maguire, a sports agent whose come to Jesus moment results in a longtime partner claiming all of his clients as well as his job. The clip that you just heard is Jerry at his lowest point after writing a heartfelt memo about focusing on the why behind what he and his agency do instead of focusing on the how much. And while this story is a fun fictional romp, it has roots with a real story. Quibi's own Jeffrey Katzenberg headed up Disney's motion picture division in the 80s and 90s. He released his own memo in 1991 titled, The World is Changing, Some Thoughts on Our Business, which detailed his thoughts on Disney and the state of the motion picture business, as well as warnings to heed. It ended up leaking to the trades and Jeffrey was ridiculed, but it ultimately proved to have insightful lessons, so much so that it inspired Cameron Crowe to include it in his film. To give you a sense of what this memo was all about, here's a little bit of an excerpt. We substituted dollars with creativity and big stars with talent we believed in. Success ensued. We found ourselves attracting the caliber of talent with which event movies could be made. And more and more, we began making them. Others will scramble for higher and higher ground, spending feverishly to keep their noses above water. We, on the other hand, have the internal talent, creativity, and absolute ability to control our own destiny. I can dream up all I want, what it would be like to be in that moment. And you probably are wondering what it has to do with B2B SaaS, or even today's episode. Truth be told, I just watched Jerry Maguire and I learned about the Katzenberg connection. I realize it's a pretty darn similar sentiment to what James Mays, co-founder of Mind the Product, had to say when we interviewed him. He sat down with Neil Desai, Paddle Director of Product at SaaS Talk 2022, to discuss how you can create your own product manifesto, taking into consideration ethical guidelines and asking ourselves if we should really build what we build. Ultimately, James found professional success in addition to moral desserts, selling mine the product to Pendo shortly before he spoke with Neil in 2022. Relax and let us take the notes for you. And by the time you're finished, you'll be ready to write your own manifesto, just like Jerry, Jeffrey, and of course, James Mays. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, James Mays helps you define your product manifesto. We talk about going from pandemic uncertainties to a pendo exit. Should we build what we build? Thinking through ethical guidelines, how to find resilient and curious product managers, and finally, how to do more with less. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on what we go over. And after you leave your five-star review, tell us the title of your product manifesto. First up, James talks about going from pandemic uncertainties to a pendo exit. James, thanks for being here, man. My pleasure. It's always good to be a SaaS doc and great to be working with Paddle still. Yeah, excited to uh, jam on a bunch of different things. 
product acquisition, the state of events in 2022. I think we've got a few things in common. Yeah, let's play. Yeah. I guess just to give the, the audience uh, some context, like what's your background, man? How'd you, why product, right? Why is this your thing? Oh, of all the things you could be doing, why'd you pick this? I often describe my career as kind of an accidental career. I mean, it's the result of engineered serendipity. I came out of university with a bunch of different degrees, didn't know what to do, fell into recruitment by accident, built a bunch of high woolens technology teams. And then someone started looking at startups. I know, I'm going to go do startups. My first startup, I did the classic move. I raised about 150 grand in angel money and then made every single decision wrong. So at that point, I thought, I need to go and work for a startup that's slightly further ahead, you know, learn the ropes a little better. And I ended up working with a startup that was building a recruiting platform in London where I could do some commercial work and ended up working quite closely with the head of product, Jana Basto. And from there, Jana introduced me to these product management events. I'm like, this is cool. I really like where these events are going. So I started getting a little bit more involved, particularly on the commercial side and helping them grow the business. And that kind of led to me joining Mind the Products full-time and spent the last 12 years bootstrapping that to the exit earlier this year. I feel like the last uh, two or three years have been particularly eventful for you, right? To state the obvious, we probably hit COVID, upended everything about the way you probably did your business. Walk me through what March 2020 was like for you as the world shut down running an events company with real employees and payroll to have. Absolutely. I mean, at this point, we're, March 2020, we were maybe 20 people on the payroll. We spent 10 years growing the business. We spent 2019 investing hard in both staff and platform. 2020 was the year it was going to pay out, right? We were really in the start mode tree. And then these news headlines started appearing. It's like, oh, that event's not running anymore. And uh, that event's not... Guys, we might be in trouble here. Yes. March 2020 landed. UK goes into lockdown. Our revenue disappeared overnight. I mean, 2019, we turned over 5 million in a week. Gone. Nothing. So we looked at the runway. It's like, there's nine months runway in the bank account. We can do something with this, right? And then you realize that that bank account, that's mostly also deposits and ticket sales for stuff that you still can't run. Okay. Well, we live and die by our reputation. So we're going to offer refunds. We're going to do this right. If you want us to keep your money and roll it forwards, we will. But if you want a refund, say the word, is that. So we did that. That nine month runway became that two months runway. We're real fast. How, how, how was your mental state at that point? I'm, like, how, I'm sure it couldn't have been easy just like tell with your team. and you know. we, had a, we had a tough time. I'm not going to lie. That was a tough time. You know, my the product was built by product managers initially. I was the only one on the founding team who wasn't actually a product guy. I was the commercial guy. So we turned some product thinking to it. It's like, okay, what do we know we've got that's solid? We've got 300,000 product managers around the world who love us. We've got 10 years worth of amazing content. We've got all these speakers that have been putting on stage and they'll straight. What can we do this digital? So our first move was actually to say, let's build a membership model, premium subscription content, right? You've all been using Mind the Product for the last 10 years. We've been an amazing resource for all of you. We are going to have to switch the lights off if the world stays like this. So if you want it to stay alive, we need you to pay just a few bucks a month to keep us afloat. Subscription membership, let's do this. Yeah. Let's, let's get this out quick and dirty. We did a little bit of state rankings. Like, let's make a list of all the things that might go in a membership product. Put that out to the community and people came back and said, yeah, let's reorder this. That was more important than this one. We learned a lot of things. If we'd have built what we thought we should build, it would have been wrong. So that stack ranking was crucial. And then that first version, again, it was how fast can we put something in the hands of customers and learn whether it's right. So that you had an audience that you've curated over 10 yeah. years, right? I mean, you knew these people. Were yeah. I mean, the audience was there. They were ready for it. So we pushed that first version out. It went live in, I want to say about six weeks. It was filthy dirty. <laughs> Hey, so, I mean, you got to get something out there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and actually, this is where we started working with Pabble in the first instance, because we were looking at this and saying, we can take subscription payments, we can take credit cards, you know, there's companies out there that do that, but merchant of record and tax? Ah, don't want that. So I was chatting to uh, Ed Fry on the Paddle says, like, I think, I think we've got a solution here. So Paddle were a key part of actually getting us to market incredibly fast. And it was that product that actually saved the business. Yeah. That's... Uh... 
I feel like that's an awesome story and like turning what could have been the downfall of 10 years of hard work, but but finding the silver lining in that and, and giving value to the people that really found, you know, a community in, in the things you had to build. Yeah. Walk me through the six week MVP of that membership model to selling the business to Pendo, who the audience is probably familiar with. Like, how did that, how'd you get from there to there? So the, the membership stuff, that went live, I want to say April, May, 2020. Fairly fast. We got our few, first few hundred customers. It was like, okay, validation. We are building something people want. People will pay for this. This is good. So then we started fine tuning that product. And it's like getting rid of a lot of the plugins and the patchwork that had got it to market. Let's start signing that up. So we worked on that for a good six months or so. And then from there, it was kind of continue to grow those numbers, but also move the workshops online, look at hybrid conferences. We were an op-in customer. So we started doing that side of things. And then towards the end of last year, having those conversations of, okay, let's take a beat. We have been firefighting for the last two years, trying to keep the lights on. We have successfully achieved that. Where do we actually want to go next? We've been so busy trying to fight those fires and trying to keep the lights on that we've had not had time to say, where do we want to be in five years time? So we started that conversation and we kind of had a few different ideas floating around internally. But again, it's like, there are only fact, there are only opinions inside the building. You want to get outside the building and find facts. So I started talking to other conference organizers, other training providers, previous event sponsors that we'd worked with on the major conferences. It's like, these are the things that my product does. If we look forward five years ago, five years forward, is this stuff we should sunset? Is this stuff that we should go harder on? Is there stuff that we don't do that we should? What should we be looking at next? And four or five of those companies started turning around and saying, does this mean you're for sale? Well, we don't need to, but we've got shareholders. I mean, if you put a number down, I'm going to have to take it to the board and we'll have that discussion and see where it goes. And a few companies actually sort of, yeah, we, we want to put a number down for this. We want to start this conversation. Okay, let's see where this goes. And then Pendo was the one where we started looking at what their strategic goals were and where they were headed, what mine the product does. And it was, it was pretty early, pretty obvious early on that there's actually a really good fit there. Pendo was saying, we want to be more than just software. Whereas mine, the product was often described as we're everything a product manager needs except software. Well, okay, I guess that fits. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. I, mean, I feel like uh, first, being in a place where you don't want to sell is the perfect place to be, right? In terms of an entrepreneur and, and really doing what's right for you guys in the long term. And, and Pendo has a great brand and, and uh, product for, for product managers. And so it seems like a really good fit. How's it been so far? I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways in which it was a really good fit. One of the things that we did early on in those conversations also was we looked at the company values to see whether we had match there or not. And Pendo would say, we're maniacal about the customer. Mind the product would say, the customer breaks the tie. Okay, so we're both pretty focused on customer opinion being the most important thing. We are both very, very customer-centric. That's great. There's not a guy from what was from there, but then you kind you do find this, I suppose culture clash is the best way of putting it. From a Mind the Product perspective, we were a small team of less than 20 people, UK-based, and very lumpy event revenues for the most part, you know, very seasonal. And then you've got Pendo, who are a thousand people, US-based, VC-funded, stable subscription revenue. Very, very different. Very model. different. So yeah, there was a good sort of six months worth of, I would say hard times, just going through that integration and getting those details right. But one of the things we were able to keep able to do is on a regular basis, check back in. It's like the reasons that we did this acquisition, the reasons that we did this deal, are they still valid? Do they still hold? Are we still true? It's like, we're all good. The big picture, the vision here is still right. So it's details that we're working through. These are all solvable problems. Love it. Well, congratulations. It's, it's, it's uh, first really special. And I think it's really cool to see you transition from pre-COVID to what happened during COVID. And now with Pendo, I'm excited to see where my the product goes. Well, oh, this is this is very much what Mind the product is doing at the moment and saying, we've now got over most of the integration work. Now let's take a look at the next couple of years. You know, the economic landscape has shifted since the deal was done. So that obviously has an impact that we need to think about. So Mind the product is now having that conversation with Mendo about what is the North Star? One of the crucial things for Mind the product over the last 10 years has been, can we stay commercially sustainable as a bootstrap business? 
but we're now part of a much larger organization. So maybe we can think differently. Maybe some of that stuff that's behind subscription paywalls, maybe we should challenge that thinking. Is that still the right approach? Or is there a different way? So keep an eye on the product over the next couple of months. And I think you'll start to see some signs coming out to market as they move through that strategic exercise and figure out what's the next most important thing. Next, James and Neil talk about, should we really build what we build? Something you and I were talking about a little bit earlier before the interview was product ethics. You've seen inside a lot of different, you talked to thousands of PMs over the years, seen inside a lot of product organizations. One thing as an industry, I don't think we've thought a lot about is beyond what to build, should we be building it? When to be building it? What, what are the sort of hard lines that define the things we're building? Talk to me a little bit about this. How do you think about product ethics on a high level and then we can dive deeper? I mean, I think it's something that people have been raising their awareness of over the last couple of years. Like I was having this conversation the other day. I've never typed it into my phone, but now I'm seeing advertising. Does this mean my TV is listening to me? You're starting to see a little bit of that paranoia creep in. You're starting to see some people saying, I don't like the way Facebook is influencing democratic decisions. So you start to see delete Facebook account campaigns and things like that. So I do think consumers generally are becoming more conscious of it. Likewise, you see some of the way, some of the things that software can do in terms of tracking your habits, sharing data, looking at the analytics. I think product managers themselves are starting to become a little bit more conscious of that and asking the question just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should. Are we still on the right side of the creepy line on this one? And then you see things like the um, the abortion laws changing in the US. And you know, if you're buying certain things from pharmacies, who is that data being shared with? Does that give any indication as to a lady in a particular situation where she can't be sharing that information. So I think these ethical considerations are becoming more and more top of mind. And it's something that we've been putting more speakers on stage on on the last couple of years to actually start raising those questions and have product managers thinking about this stuff. And the reason is this, doesn't matter who you talk to in software, pretty much everybody is familiar with that old Andreessen quote, software is eating the world, right? That's been going around a good 10 years now. Everyone knows that quote. I'll give you an updated version of it. If software managers are eating the world, product managers are writing the menu. You are the people that we need to influence. We don't necessarily need to tell you how to make the decision, but we need to make sure that you are considering the decision. We need to make sure that you are asking those questions. And my colleague at Mind the Product is now managing director there, Emily Tate, has one of the best framings for this that I've ever seen. What would 4chan do? That deepest, darkest corner of the internet where all the real trolls lurk? If you build this feature, what would they do? Just consider that before taking another step. And as, as a IC, I, I used to be an ICPM, now I'm leading a product team. Whose responsibility is it to kind of set the guardrails or a framework around this? Because on one hand, you don't want to micromanage PMs and, and, and these things have nuance to them and it's a case-by-case basis. There's also a lot of other stakeholders like data teams, right? Engineering, obviously. When you think about instilling product ethics at a larger company, whose responsibility is it to kind of set those values and framework so that the team can kind of adhere to them if that's the right way to go about it? I, mean, I think there's a large responsibility does fall to the product leader here. In the same way that as a product leader, you might have a fleet of product managers working for you and you'll say, these are the tests that we will do. These are the ways in which we'll test confidence before we build something. These are the things that we want to understand about our ICPs before we go build this feature. But the same is true of risk, right? So if we're building these things, what are the risk considerations that we have? Are there certain steps that I expect every product manager to go through before we start work on a feature? And I think it's for the product leader to say, here are certain steps that we should always consider. When we build a new thing, how might it be misused? If this thing were available to trolls, what damage might it do? And maybe it's just for the product leader to set four or five questions and say to each product manager, when you consider a new feature, just do this. This is enough for the start. I just want to know it's considered. I think to your point, it needs to be baked into the process, right? It can't just be hoping that a PM on their own volition thinks of this because there's a lot going on, right? And, and, and so oftentimes it's 
it's hard to think yeah. before you get started, right? What are the things you need to look out for once you actually dive deeper? Yeah. And I think the, I think there's a, there's a lot of startups out there thinks that is about the sort of move fast and break things. Sure. It's okay sometimes for a piece of code to fall over and roll it back. People's personal safety, that's not a move fast and break things, you know? Those considerations need to be early in the process. And now, James talks about thinking through ethical guidelines. How do you think about when balancing that line is at odds with a business objective or a metric that commercial cares about? Because I think it's easy for us on the product team to say, look, we have this hard line here, but it gets complicated, right? When we have stakeholders outside of the product team. Is there an element of this that requires alignment across the company beyond just product and engineer? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier that both Mind the Product and Pendo share this customer value, right? Pendo being maniacal about the customer. Mind the product, the customer breaks the tie. I think that's one that you can bake into your company values that helps you make the right decisions. So you can weigh up any decision and say, we could do this or we could do this. Which one would the customer want you to do? Which one would they be more comfortable with? And it's a really, really simple thing, but it helps guide you to the right choice every time. Yeah, I think on, uh, on the flip side of this too, I feel like the regulations are coming around as well for consumer protection, right? I think in the States, there's some states now, for example, require self-serve cancellation in the product. Like you have to give your customers a way to cancel their subscription without having a bunch of dark UX patterns or absolutely uh, things like that. Right? This, this is because you built product for years and years and years where there was no self-serve cancellation. Now, fundamentally, if you misbehave and you do bad things, you will get regulated or you could get it right yourselves. And then the chances are the regulators will actually leave you alone. So which would you rather? Yeah, I joke that I don't want the regulators to be a shadow PM on our teams, right? It should be us that proactively make these decisions. And then the regulators are there to safety net, not actually defining the UX of your product. They are, they are not going to cash everything. You should be cashing everything. And if you do, they will come near you. They'll happily leave you alone. But the moment customers start complaining or the moment you start seeing front page news stories, that's when the regulators are going to come sniffing around. Yep. That's, it's in your power to avoid that if you so wish. If you have a, a newer PM listening to this, their company tracks a lot of data, but they're not doing anything around this. Where does one start in terms of defining values around product and thinking through the ethical kind of guidelines around the impact that your product? I think in many ways, product is still a nascent discipline, right? There's a lot of companies with a very immature. It's so different that every company, right. what product really is, is yeah. so different. I and mean, if, if I ask 10 product leaders, 10 CPOs, what does good product management look like? I will get 10 different answers, guarantee you. So I think on this one, I would say start by looking at product organizations that you actually admire and then look at their values. If they turned into an organization that you admire, that you believe does things well and holds itself to high standards, take a look at their values. What have they got that's guiding their decisions? What can you replicate from there? How can you learn from them? Now, there will be some stuff that you learn and you test it. It's like, actually, that's not quite right for us, but you started from a good place and you're then able to iterate. Are there any that come to mind as having done a particular great job of this? I think uh, Wise, probably TransferWise in London, our spectacular product and growth team. But again, they focus on long-term value for their customers. Again, it's that customer centricity, right? And they're a financially regulated organization, but they tend to stay the right side by having those good guiding principles in mind. I think that'll do a great job. I think one of the other things I was talking to Patrick and uh, Christian about at a previous event was this idea of this generation of the web is about making it easier for you. Whereas Paddle are driving this message of the next generation is going about, we do it for you. And again, you're keeping the customer at the heart of that conversation. And I think if you do that, you will continue to find the right place in these conversations. Next up, James talks about how to find resilient and curious product managers. Speaking of CPOs and finding PMs, I want to transition you a little bit about how to build product teams that lead to strong product cultures, right? 
given that this is still relative to other disciplines in its nascency, product means different things at different companies of different sizes and different verticals. How, having spoken to a lot of PMs, how do we find and build the next generation of PMs for this industry? I know this is a particular topic you're particularly passionate about. Yeah. As someone that works closely with a lot of like universities in my area and mentoring students and whatnot, I think it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about too. But it's hard. It's hard uh, and the, the requirements shift a lot. Product 20 years ago means a product different today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 20 years ago, if you were a product manager, like you had a roadmap and you had a backlog. Yeah. Whereas now you also have go-to-market positioning, you have pricing strategies, you have competitive benchmarking. The product oh, is so much broader yeah. than it ever was, right? I think there's a couple of things that feed into this. First, I think there are some organizations that do a great job of defining a product manifesto. And what I mean by that is they'll lay out a statement of this is product in this organization. This is what we expect of the business. And this is what the business can expect of us. So you have those guardrails, you have that sort of those rules of engagement nicely set up. And you can go back and review that every year or whatever if needed. So you have that nice model set. And it will be different from one organization to another. Secondly, I think one of the things that's become clear from the mind of product events over the last decade or so is there is no one right way to do product. There are probably about 10,000 wrong ways. The cheapest mistake to learn from is someone else's. So we run these product tank events that are free in over 200 cities. Go find your community, meet with other product managers, have those peer conversations and learn from the mistakes that they've made. One of the earliest product tank events I went to, I saw a lady who was new to the audience. I was like, is this your first product tank? How did you find it? And she said something that stayed with me for the last decade as we built this thing. She said, my CEO is insane and my engineers all hate me. This has been therapy. And I can see this is resonating. Because <laughs> it's a very, especially early stage, it's a very lonely job, right? There's very few people at a company, an early stage product that have a the same vantage point that you do in between the leadership, engineering, your commercial teams. So getting a community of other PMs around you is, is very therapeutic and just learning from others on how they approach similar problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we're all in there. One of the other conversations I get asked on a fairly regular basis is like, where do I find new PMs? Where can I find and what's What are the most valuable attributes in new product managers? So I've been working with a few companies on this recently and something that seems to be resonating and working well is you start talking to your engineers and ask them who they know in customer success. Yes. You find a customer success person who cares enough about the problem to go talk to engineers, is not afraid to start beating the engineers over the head to find a solution. There you have a customer success person who has all the makings of a product manager. And I would say the two most important personality attributes are probably resilience and curiosity. So you just found a way to identify somebody in your organization who demonstrates both of those. I couldn't agree more. We have a couple of great examples of panel of folks who used to do CS that have transitioned to product. And I think they're, of all the traits of PMDs, some of the things are easier to coach and train than others, right? And I think CS being on the front lines, they're immediately product experts, domain experts, talking to customers all the time, right? And so to your point, right, that's such an underrated way of recruiting new PMs, especially in a scaling organization. Absolutely. Most of the product people that I know, that one of their, their biggest challenges is actually getting enough time talking to customers. You get somebody from that background who feels really comfortable with that, really knows your customers, really understands their context and their problems, what they're trying to achieve. And now, James talks about doing more with less. Where do you think, we, we talked about how product is getting more complex as a role, as a, as a discipline. Where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? As tools become more sophisticated, data becomes more sophisticated, does, do our roles become even narrower in scope? Is it something else? There's a lot of like memes and jokes about big tech PMing these days. What is, any, any trends or patterns you, you think our field is kind of transitioning into? I think the current economic climate is actually going to lean quite hard on product managers in one particular area. Fundamentally, there are two ways to add to a company's bottom line, right? You can either make more money 
or you can spend less. Those are the only two things that are going to affect your bottom line at the end of the year. And a lot of product managers that, a lot of the conversations that I've been involved in over the last couple of years is people focused on product-led growth. Let's grow the revenue. Let's find new customers. Let's upsell. Let's cross-sell. Let's reduce churn. Well, they're all good, but there's other great things that product can do too. So I was talking to a, a customer a couple of weeks ago who said, we've been digging down in our product analytics recently. There's one particular feature that costs us an absolute bomb to maintain. We spent about 200,000 a year on this. And we realized the usage looked kind of weird. So we started digging into the analytics a little bit more, right? And then they realized, well, actually, no, this feature is still used. I guess we have to keep it. People do still go in there. And they dig deeper. And then they dig deeper. And they find that actually, the only people who go to that feature are people who navigated there by accident. Nobody used it. Well, okay, this is a quick test. How would you all feel if we took this feature away? Yeah? Okay, well, I guess we can kill that and save 200,000 a year. That goes straight to your bottom line. So I think the product role is actually going to continue to evolve and there's going to be a little bit more of a look at things like that. It's like, yeah. in this economic climate, you have to do more with less, right? But here's one way you can do that. I also think it's up to product leaders to make sure that incentives are aligned or we look out for those things too because that PM isn't going to go to an all hands and say, look, I killed this feature, but it was the right thing to do, right? And so I, I think it's it's up to leadership to also be cognizant that Success as a PM, also the definition of what a successful PM looks like also evolves, right, into a more holistic definition than just who's launching or shipping the most, like number of newest features, which isn't always correlating to customer value. Absolutely. We were at a product tank event last night in Dublin, and Jana was talking a lot about OKRs and how you get OKR drift. And but how many people have had OKRs? Right? How many people have dropped them by the wayside? And there's a lot of that does happen. And it's partially because you're not using them right or you're making them too weighty. But it's also because, as you say, they're sometimes not aligned well enough with where the company is actually trying to get to, and particularly what it's trying to deliver for its customers. Dave Meyer was like, made a great point last night, asking the question, what user behavior do you have to change in order to unlock customer value. So again, asking questions like that, I think is the future of the role is getting closer and closer to what does the customer really want? How are we delivering value? And are those two things actually tied close enough together in the work that we're doing? What are you most excited about, James? Obviously, you've gone through a bunch of uh, change in the last year. You're working with the team at Pendo now, but I'm sure you have more free time to think about other things too. What, like, what are you most excited about as you think about your personal journey in the next couple of years? I think for me, I'm actually going to take a little bit of time out next and weigh a few things up and see what opportunities look interesting. Is there any back lands or interesting things you have? I mean, I haven't been on a mountain in five years. I need to get some snowboarding in. Where are you going to go hiking? It's got to be Austria. Love Austria. Great place to visit. There's a little bit more travel I want to do, but to be honest, it'd be nice to do some travel for pleasure and not business. Growing your confidence business, you end up yeah. in an awful lot of warehouses like this, which they're kind of fun, but uh, once you've seen one, and I think the internet is actually just going to become a really, really interesting place over the next couple of years. There's been so much noise about crypto and NFTs and Web 3.0 over the last couple of years, and so much of it, it's frankly rubbish. But I think yeah. in the next year or two, we might actually start to see some interesting real world problems being solved by some of this tech. So I'm kind of interested to see where that goes. But still one that fries my brain a little bit. So I'll be taking a step back from that. <laughs> in, uh, in a few years, I'll probably want to pick your brain around how PMing in that context is different than B2B SaaS company, for example, right? Absolutely. One of the things that we're starting to do now is we're doing more and more episodes on the podcast and also paper, uh, white papers on the Mind the Product site where we're saying, you know, product management in machine learning or AI or Web3, how does that differ from the product management that we've been learning about for the last 10 years? Are there different considerations that we need to work through? Absolutely, there are. So part of mine, the product's future is actually providing those primers and saying, as a product manager, some of your core skill set is highly transferable. 
the ability to talk to users, the ability to do discovery, the ability to talk to engineers, the ability to frame problems and help them propose solutions. But some of it is actually different. You know, the, the long-term implications of an AI engine that could rebuild itself or rewrite its own code and make itself opaque to you, different. that's a very different set of risks. So there are some areas where we need to start providing those primers and say, if you're a product manager going into one of these newer areas, these are some of the considerations that you might want in mind. If, um, just to wrap us out, James, if folks listening to this want to find more about you, more about Mind the Product. Where can they go? Where can they? I'm LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm super easy to find. Uh, I quite like chat. You know, yeah. You'll find me easy enough. <laughs> and if there are PMs that need more community, need more resources, what's your advice on uh, leveling up? Go to, go to Mind the Product. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, most of the site is free and open access. It's only some very small areas that are behind the premium paywall. 80% of it is open to anyone. There's 10 years worth of product management content there. There's meetups in 200 cities around the world newsletters, podcasts, all kinds of stuff. So start there. And if you can't find what you're looking for, give me a shout. You know, I'm up there on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm always happy to help. Love it. Well, James, I really appreciate your time. I've been a fan for a long time. And I think uh, our industry and product in general is, is better off uh, given the work that you've done. So I really appreciate it. And thanks for being here. It's really great to hear. Thanks, thanks. for having me out. A massive shout out to James for doing this podcast. Now you have what it takes to craft your own product manifesto. Today, we talked about going from pandemic uncertainties to a pendo exit. Should we build what we build? Thinking through ethical guidelines, how to find resilient and curious product managers, and finally, how to do more with less. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and don't forget to tell us the title of your product manifesto. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.